Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Monday morning, the 4th of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Lisa Smith is a Dundalk native and former member of uh, the Defence Forces. She's often seen in photographs with Bertie Ahern, uh, the former Taoiseach, or with local former minister Dermot Ahern from the time she worked on the government jet. She is seen just as often in a hijab as an ISIS bride after moving to Syria where she is now trying to escape from with her two-year-old daughter. Lisa Smith says she has not been radicalised, but this claim is questioned by many indeed. If Smith ever comes home, she'll be asked about some other photographs taken of her holding guns in Tunisia. Yesterday, the Sunday World reported that the government has begun the process of getting Lisa Smith and her daughter home in what is being described as a non-combative evacuation operation. It'll involve members of uh, the Defence Forces as well as government officials to repatriate 38-year-old Lisa Smith with her two-year-old daughter. It's believed they're being held by members of the Turkish militia close to Syria's border with Turkey, but in Syria and it's a delegation from the Department of Foreign Affairs that has been deployed according to this report in the Sunday World along with members of uh, the Army Rangers Wing an elite wing of uh, the Irish Defence Forces. Now if she is repatriated and comes home uh, it's also believed uh, that there isn't an airline in the world that would carry her and that a commercial flight would have to be uh, hired and uh, that this could cost as much as €30,000, according to the Star newspaper today. Declan Parr is a security analyst, and I've been talking to him about this uh, report that was leaked to the Sunday World yesterday. And we should be able to hear what Declan has to say about that now, if uh, you bear with me for one moment. Here's what Declan had to say about the leaked report strange for something to be leaked at a time when there's a, an ongoing operation. It, it's not helpful to the people that are involved. Um, we just have to wait and see. Okay, it would in itself be a very complicated uh, operation, I take it, uh, for the officials uh, from uh, the Foreign Affairs Department and indeed uh, this elite wing of uh, the Irish Army, the Irish Rangers. Yeah, it, well, they have worked together before and, and a number of other uh, types of operations and 
you may remember the Guardian journalist, I think it was Guardian journalist Rory Carroll, uh, when he was abducted. Um, uh, there was a, a team, a, a diplomatic military team, including members of the, the Ranger Wing, on site for that. There's a, an impression being given that they're sort of all tooled up to make some sort of an intervention. And that's not how these things work. They're much more delicately balanced than that. And it's, it's to do with relationship building, which would have been ongoing. And of course, the Ranger Wing are and should be involved in something like this as the state's foremost specialist in crisis and risk management and response. But um, as I said, there's, it's a multi-agency type approach and is, is best discussed in detail uh, if and when the people at the centre of it are uh, released and repatriated. Right, and uh, the reports uh, seem to indicate uh, that uh, the Army Rangers' role in all of this is actually to protect uh, the officials uh, from the Department of Foreign Affairs rather than Lisa Smith and her daughter. It would, their role would be to protect everybody concerned uh, once they're within their jurisdiction, as it were, once they're under their stewardship. And um, you have to take into account that this is a pretty volatile part of the world, which has been made more volatile in recent times mm. due to the uh, uh, Turkish military uh, incursion into the, the, that area of, of, that was previously Kurdish held. So the old certainties and stabilities, in as much as there were any, have uh, been in a state of flux over the last few weeks. Mm, and I, I suppose like any highly militarised uh, border, uh, it would uh, mean that there's always that risk of danger. The bigger part of the problem is uh, that Lisa Smith is on the wrong side of the border in terms of security, is she not? Uh, I understand she's in Syria. Yes, yeah, that's correct. That's, I think, the understanding that everybody has at this point in time. Um, I think what's important to realise is that the state has learnt, going back to Libya in 2011, um, Darfur in 2009 during the Cummins kidnapping, there was a lot of lessons learnt about um, conjoining the best assets of the state to try and look after our citizens abroad, mm. be they military, diplomatic uh, uh, or other. And fundamentally this comes down to building relationships with key elements entities agencies and individuals that are in situ in the in the, in the country's concerned and making use of their good offices uh, to either get somebody released or to get them maybe moved to a point where they can be successfully and safely repatriated Mm. Uh, and in terms on how this type of, of uh, an operation is looked on, it would be similar to that in Libya in 2011. That's when the civil war started there, and uh, the objective was uh, to get citizens, Irish citizens, home uh, safe and well. Uh, the objective is the same here, and uh, both would be described as non-combatant evacuation operations. Uh, but uh, is this uh, because uh, the Irish want to bring Lisa Smith home, do you think, or is it because Turkey uh, wants to wash their hands of people? People like Lisa Smith, uh, we heard uh, the president there over the weekend saying that Turkey would not be a hotel for foreign terrorists. I think the driving force behind this is not Lisa Smith. It's the fact that she has a daughter who's an innocent party to all this and who is an Irish citizen. And therefore, the state has a duty of care. I think that's the primary element. I think everything else after that is incidental. And uh, despite whatever utterances came out of the uh, Turkish authorities in recent times, the foundations to to this, if, it, if indeed it turns out to be successful, 
will have been the relationships that have been built up, which didn't happen over the last 48, 72 hours or, or even a week. It would have happened over a lengthier period of time. Mm. And her little girl, Rakaya, is an innocent Irish citizen. Uh, we've heard her grandfather in Dundalk saying he wants uh, to meet her and for her and Lisa to come home. Uh, but I, I gather if this operation is successful and Lisa Smith is brought home, uh, that she'll be separated at least for a period of time from her daughter. I'd imagine she will be. Uh, she will have uh, questions to answer from Angarda Shiakana. There's an active investigation and uh, we have to wait and see what that results in. Uh, it could result in her being prosecuted. Uh, if that means being brought before the courts, then depends on, on, on what decisions uh, arise from that. But having said that, even if she was to end up, if Lisa Smith was to end up incarcerated, there are all sorts of provisions in place within the penal system for women to be able to have access to their children. We're not living in the Middle Ages. She's mm. not going to be separated uh, for any length longer than is necessary from her, her child. And there will be provision made uh, for that. I mean, there is a, you know, people are familiar with the Dolka Centre in Mount Joy mm. Prison, mm. which exists for women and, and has various provisions for uh, women to be able to rear their children in as much as that's possible. Oh, I'm sure, but uh, the point being uh, that Lisa Smith will return to this country if she does return uh, on a basis uh, different to that of her daughters. Uh, and Absolutely, and, and quite appropriately, um, she has questions to mm. answer. And she'll be taken away, she'll be questioned, uh, she may face charges. If she faces charges, uh, she may end up being incarcerated, as you say. Uh, you said that would be in her interest uh, uh, to us uh, some time ago uh, for her own safety, uh, because uh, there would be such a, a negative response to her returning to this country. Uh, but there's also a very strong chance that she won't face charges or a prison term, for that matter, because of uh, the level of proof that is available to the authorities. Lisa Smith says... She has never been involved in any terrorist activity. Well, look, this is a matter fundamentally for the courts to decide on and mm. for uh, people with uh, uh, legal expertise. Um, what I would say simply is this, is that she has admitted to having uh, sought out this entity, this, uh, this terrorist grouping called Islamic State, Um you know, people have gone to prison in this jurisdiction for being members of uh, of an illegal organisation called the Irish Republican Army. Um, it remains for the courts to decide whether there is a similarity from a legal point of view in, in her admittances on air and in print. And I think that's something for the Garda investigation to provide the facts on and for the courts to decide the legality on. Okay, and she was detained in uh, two refugee camps in uh, Syria up to this point. Uh, I think uh, the reports are that she's in a, a, a safe house uh, being guarded by Turkish authorities at the moment. Uh, but to get to there and to get her home, uh, what are we talking about in terms of the cost involved in all of this? Uh, because, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, you believe there'll be a very negative response to her coming back. People won't want to pay for that privilege. Uh, and indeed, uh, there is uh, the danger that you mentioned earlier on uh, in terms of the officials who will travel out to bring her home and uh, those members of the Defence Forces who are there to protect all of them. Yeah, and as we're talking about an active 
uh, operation. It's not something I'm going to comment on as it could impinge on an operational security. Um, I think anybody that thinks about this with a, a degree of, of, of common sense can see the point I'm coming from. Uh, there's a time and a place, and uh, when this is resolved, if it gets resolved, is the time to, to get into the minutiae. At this point in time, uh, the people at the coalface uh, are under a degree of pressure, and uh, speculation and and unnecessary um, focus is not helpful at this point. And it's bizarre that the amount of detail that was leaked was leaked uh, over the last 24 hours. Security analyst, analyst uh, Declan Power speaking to me before we came on air today. Now, uh, to a story about migration, uh, the Taoiseach has been speaking over the weekend and uh, has made some comments that are of concern to people, uh, especially uh, people uh, who have uh, friends or know people from Georgia and Albania or who are working with immigrants uh, to uh, this country. He said uh, that there are two countries that are a big driver behind a 60% increase in applications uh, for asylum in Ireland in uh, the first nine months of uh, this country and uh, that there are a lot of people coming here from Georgia and Albania and the only reason they're getting into this country is because uh, they're using fake documents. Uh, Let's hear from Fiona Hurley who's uh, the Policy and Communications Manager with NASC, uh, the Migrant and Refugee Rights Group. A very good morning to you Fiona and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, What do you make of what the Taoiseach said. Good morning. Um, we'd be quite worried about the Taoiseach's statement. Um, it, it kind of represents a, an under, a misunderstanding of what it means to be claiming asylum in, in a particular country. Um, a claim for asylum are an individualised claim. So a person can come from a country that might theoretically be seen as safe or might be from a country where there's a lot of tourism. Mm. But that doesn't mean that the individual concerned doesn't face a risk of persecution. Um, and that's, um, that's, that's, I think... Um, really important to to reiterate that it's an individualised claim based on an individual's experience. Okay, but that doesn't uh, give uh, them the right uh, to seek asylum. Uh, they shouldn't uh, be afforded asylum if they're coming from a safe country. So um, that's actually that that wouldn't be correct. Um, there is an international and um, a national legal uh, right to claim asylum in in a, in, a, in Ireland. Um, and by there certainly are Georgians and Albanians who have refugee status, who have been determined to have, to be refugees and to meet that definition. So by singling out those two countries and by saying that they are predominantly safe countries, mm. then that's that is very problematic because it is. Um, well, it, it it's, cer- it's certainly the impression that Taoiseach gave Fiona, isn't it, uh, that they're economic migrants. It is, and that would be that wouldn't be correct. I mean, certainly you could have people from a particular country where there wouldn't necessarily be, um, you know, when we see widespread violence or war. But that's just again, um, that is a misconception of what it is to be a refugee. Um, mm. You don't have to be from a war torn country to be a refugee. Mm. Uh, well, I think uh, that uh, many of uh, the people uh, that we're talking uh, about uh, would uh, certainly have had experience of, of war or at least have had war on their doorstep and uh, mm. have uh, witnessed uh, some terrible things in their lifetime. And uh, because of uh, the events that happened uh, in proximity of them, uh, extreme poverty has resulted. Yeah, and um, I think 
you know, we also have to take into consideration that a person doesn't necessarily know whether they will meet the standard to be considered a refugee until their case is actually heard. Um, so we can't say to people, no, you can't come in because we've decided before you come to Ireland that you are not a refugee. Mm. Um, you know, there are cases where, um, you know, it may not seem like you're that... Um, you're from, again, what we say as a war-torn country, but you may very well have very legitimate grounds of persecution based on a particular individualised persecution from a state government where you've been exposing corruption, for example, or where you cannot be protected by your state and you become a victim of something like a mafia in your country. Mm. So, um, again, we would just kind of ask the Taoiseach to be um, kind of more nuanced in his comments and to be more careful with his comments because we would worry about the impact that that has on Albanians and Georgians in the state. Mm. I spent a, a little bit of time in Albania and uh, they are some of the nicest and most charitable people in the world. Uh, the time I was there uh, was uh, during uh, the Kosovo War, which is uh, next door. And the amount of people who crossed over the border seeking uh, asylum uh, was incredible. Uh, they came uh, with uh, terrible pain uh, and uh, terrible memories uh, and uh, left many behind who had been uh, killed uh, by Milosevic uh, and his cohorts. Uh, but uh, they were very welcome in what is an incredibly poor country. Uh, the mm-hmm. poverty in Albania is impossible to describe. If you're in that country, uh, there is no infrastructure to speak of uh, and there is no obvious way of making a living. There's no industry, mm-hmm. there's no shops, uh, there's uh, very little uh, in terms of uh, being able to look for work. Uh, there's very little in terms of uh, being able to do anything because of the previous regime's uh, policies there. Uh, and uh, for such a, a a warm welcome that those people gave to people seeking asylum. It's incredible to think uh, that uh, the Taoiseach is making comments like that of people from another country, given the experience of the Irish abroad and how we've been welcomed uh, when we travelled as economic migrants. Yeah, absolutely. I think you make some brilliant points there. Um, we also need to look at the fact that um, we there there are very few safe and legal pathways for people to actually access Ireland. Um, maybe we should consider um, if, if you know, if we are concerned that there are a lot of people claiming asylum, um, maybe we look at work permits um, and opening up the work permit system a little bit more so that people can come um, and find employment straight away. Mm. So, you know, there's a lot of other alternatives that can be looked at as well. But certainly there are people um, who have legitimate claims to persecution who would be from Albania and from Georgia. Mm. I think that's true, uh, but uh, it seems uh, to have been lost to some degree on uh, the Taoiseach. Uh, we leave it yeah. there for the moment, though. But many thanks uh, to you for taking the time to make comment on the programme with us uh, this morning, Fiona. Fiona Hurley is uh, the Policy and Communications Manager with uh, the uh, Migrant and Refugee Rights Group, NASC. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as uh, we heard last week, uh, the Garda Representative Association condemned attacks on members of Angarda Shiakana in County Louth on Halloween night. Garda Derek O'Donoghue is uh, the CEC Louth representative with uh, the GRA and on the, the line with us. A very good morning to you, uh, Derek. Uh, thanks uh, for joining us. I suppose uh, most people will be aware at this stage of uh, the attack on uh, the Garda car, the patrol car going through the Moneymore estate uh, and the firework or petrol bomb uh, as it looked to us uh, being thrown at that car and indeed uh, the guard who came under attack in Black Rock a derelict house on fire fireworks thrown at 
the Garda, uh, one exploding within inches of her, uh, and uh, very lucky not uh, to have been injured as a result of all of that. Uh, how typical is that type of behaviour these days? Well, Halloween. Good morning, mm-hmm. uh, Michael. Well, Halloween, thank goodness, is only once a year. So it seems to be just a, a yearly event. And it's normally just uh, the lead up a week before Halloween and maybe a few days afterwards. Now, in relation to the fireworks been thrown at members uh, last week, it's the first time I've seen it. I heard it's been as blatant as that. Um, but last year, the fire brigade services allowed, I think, were under fierce pressure when it came to outing fires. And this year, it seems to be the target seemed to have been the guards because it was raining that night. Uh, the fire brigade weren't out most fires building on bonfires that were lit around the areas were out by about 11 o'clock because of the heavy rainfall. I take it uh, the Gardaí involved in both of these incidents uh, that we're talking about uh, this morning were pretty shook by what happened. They, they, they were. No, it wasn't a petrol bomb. It was a repeater uh, firework as far as we know. That's what they're known as. They get, Initially, in relation to the one incident in Drogheda, uh, the report came across that uh, it was a banger thrown at a patrol car. And it's only a few hours later when we saw the uh, video going around actually how serious it was. Mm. The guards... It looked like a a petrol bomb, uh, and forgive us for thinking it was, because the car went up in flames and then there seemed to be a a small explosion a short time after. Yes, I'd, I'd, there must have been debris when went under the the patrol car and just with the way the filming was, mm. that there must have been something like special effects. And were, but, were, were there a number of attacks on that car? Because it, it seemed to come out of a, a ball of fire before it was attacked by that young fellow. This is the thing. This It's a repeat of fireworks, so I think it just flares up continually. Right, OK. And that was it. But, Michael, the thing about it was that patrols continued onwards that night. There was no... Intimidation by Gardaí. We we still patrol the area as we normally would. Mm. We actually just heard it was a, a, a firework and thought nothing more of it. Uh, and most of the families around the whole of Drogheda had fireworks going, and mm. people and people were supervising their uh, children. And the night went off without effect, only for that. Now, in relation to uh, Dundalk, that member was doing duty on the road. Not alone had to worry about uh, the safety of passerby and uh, make make sure that uh, traffic was running smoothly through the area. But then she suddenly had to contend with somebody targeting her and interfering with her duty, mm. and which could have caused an accident indirectly where she could have been injured. Very brazen behaviour in a part of uh, the world where it uh, appears to be very dangerous to be a member of the police force. Well, there's danger all the time, but you do you, you want to reduce the dangers to minimal levels, but it doesn't help when you've been targeted. Uh, and indeed, the level of crime uh, and uh, the violent behaviour uh, that we've experienced along the border has obviously uh, come into sharp focus in recent times. But there are many challenges for your members, whether it's uh, the gangs in Drogheda and uh, the guns and beatings or what's happening in Cavan or, or the ATM raids or the attack on uh, the Garda station uh, in Monaghan uh, as well. Uh, do you believe uh, that the border is lawless? 
Well, you're you're very close to you're on you're going between two jur- jurisdictions. I wouldn't say it's lawless, but it, some people have taken advantage of it to go back and forth. Uh, it's p- p- uh, patrolled as best we can by the manpower that is available. And uh, what what type of manpower is available? Uh, is there? Uh, enough uh, in terms of uh, the resource given to this part of the world? Uh, are there enough members of uh, the force uh, and uh, is uh, the usual recruiting that takes place at this time uh, of year scheduled? Well, there's, there's recruits uh, uh next month. Normally this time of year uh, they're deployed in Operation Free, free Flow uh, where they go to particular centres around the country. At the minute, no word has come by on what's happening this year. Uh, people would like certainty to know what's happening. I'm sure the politicians would like to know how many guards are coming to their county. The guardian would like to know how many guards are coming to a division in order to uh, make policing, uh, to provide police you know, mm-hmm. the Christmas period. Nobody wants to see a zero recruitment. Remember, nobody wants to see a zero at the end of a, a sheet saying there's nobody coming to low. But we'd certainly like to know how, how many are coming this year. Uh, in relation to manpower along the border, you'd like to see all the stations uh, been filled. Uh, nobody knows what's happening with Brexit, whether it's a soft border or a hard border. But I'd be looking at it as an international border where uh, customs will need the assistance of the guards because of the type of land crossing we have. Uh, we've got the ports in Drogheda and Dundalk, which are entry points for for uh, materials coming from the UK. Mm. Um, one, one of the most visible things that I'm glad to report is that uh, work has been going on in Hackboss Cross over the, the last few weeks. So the port of cabin there should hopefully be obsolete within the next few weeks and members stationed up there will uh, be in a hard structure as, as opposed to port cabin. Mm-hmm. And with that, I'd expect resources to go ahead to be uh, transferred in there. Um, I would also hope, and uh, Michael, there was one mm-hmm. other thing as well. Yeah. The cabin and Monaghan were always, uh, a few years ago, were promised that one ASU unit would be going to the division would be set up but it was as a part of that program it was also uh, promised that uh, there would be full complement of ASU manpower in load as well That's and hopefully course, that, yeah. that mm. and hopefully that will be uh, honoured as well in the uh, and what, what, can, what can you tell us about uh, the armed units uh, in Louth uh, is uh, the deployment of uh, those units oh, yeah. to be extended uh, because uh, as I understand it uh, it was up to the 1st of November and it was uncertain as to whether they would remain in situ well, I, I don't know about that. Uh, we don't. We haven't been given a briefing about that. But uh, I'd be more or less concerned that there should be 100% ASU cover in loud provided by the members out of Dundalk, 24/7, and it shouldn't be run on an overtime budget the whole time because okay. overtime can be pulled at any time. Okay.
Uh, Michael, there was on a, sorry, I made a mistake. There was actually Dramadgarda Station has been upgraded, not Hackball's Cross. Okay, okay, okay. It's a significant uh, difference. Okay. All right. Thank you. I have to leave it there, Derek. Uh, thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on uh, the programme this morning. Garda Derek O'Donoghue, CEC, loud representative uh, with the Garda Representative Association. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now we'll return uh, to uh, the meeting on the RD bypass uh, that Oireachtas members had with uh, Transport Infrastructure Ireland. Uh, if you remember, TII had promised to issue a clarification document, and we're joined this morning by Labour Party Senator Gerald Nash, who comes to us with that clarification document. Uh, h- how clear are things to you? Because it, it seems as though there is a degree of uncertainty that remains. <coughs> Well, I'm not sure that there's any uncertainty uh, anymore. Um, at that meeting that um, Deputy Fergus allowed as the chair, of course, of mm. the Oireachtas Transport Committee um, held um, last Friday week, um, I was very clear to TII officials that what I wanted to avoid four or five different versions of the same meeting emerging uh, after it was a clarification document, um, how we got here, what the current context is and mm-hmm. what the next steps are. Um the big takeaway for me from that meeting and indeed from this document is that there will be delays, mm. regret, regrettably, on the RD bypass. We all want to see it. There happen. may be insurmountable delays, so this is... Uh, there may very well. We don't have a crystal mm-hmm. ball, mm-hmm. but um, the point about it is uh, we can't avoid the reality that um, if changes, and it's likely mm. that changes will be made to the original route, uh, if and when those changes are made, we'll have to go through a whole new series of planning amendments, um, CPOs, yep. uh, environmental assessments uh, and other statutory processes and no politician can wave a magic wand and wish those particular processes away. No. Interestingly as and well. And nobody can make any assumptions about how they'll pan out. Nobody absolutely. knows going into the planning process what the outcome will be uh, and you have to face the possibility that it'll be rejected. Absolutely because it's mm. an open, mm. transparent statutory consultation process and I know that mm. members of Loud County Council and local, local Oireachtas members had a meeting um, with Loud County Council last week to address uh, Loud County Council's responsibilities in, mm. in this regard. Now, uh, I was unwell last Friday and wasn't in a position to, to make that uh, meeting uh, but it appears that Loud County Council, from what I know from that meeting, mm-hmm. having spoken to Councillor Hugh Conlon this morning, uh, from what I know from that meeting and the TII document that both authorities are on the same page. Everybody wants to see this happen and it's a matter of when this happens and it's important. And how. how. And, and how, and, of course. And how and where because the route has uh, been called into question to some degree it, it, and, and there's two issues to has. this, the cul-de-sacs and uh, the environmental aspect. Uh, and but it's also, Michael, and it's a point mm-hmm. worth making, um, you know, th- this isn't a sort of uh, some kind of zero-sum game or uh, isn't the case either that it, it is entirely black and white and that, and, and I, you know, I don't want to get involved in a blame game here because I think there are too many people who've been at this over mm. the last period of time. Um, there's nobody responsible for the delay. This is a reality. Uh, if it is the case, which is the case here, that the bypass hadn't been built within five years of it receiving planning permission, it would have to be reassessed anyway. Mm. Remember it received planning permission back in 2005. There are no new environmental regulations in place since 2012. Mm. So when the scheme re-emerged, the local authority and TII had to be more than conscious of these new regulations. Mm. And in addition, um, there are new spending codes in place, uh, introduced a number of years ago, to keep a tight rein uh, on public expenditure Mm. projects. And heaven knows that this current government has got itself into terrible difficulty over costs overruns Mm. on the National Children's Hospital and so on. So Transport Infrastructure Ireland 
are very, very clear that they need to do what's called the right thing on this by the taxpayer and the right thing in terms of planning processes mm. and so on. So in other words, they wouldn't approve and the Minister for Transport wouldn't approve a bypass project uh, in full knowledge that it may need to be reassessed. People listening will say, we've waited forever for this and that's in part the point uh, because it's gone past that five-year time frame uh, since uh, the planning was granted. It's now 14 years on, so it has to be reassessed. So what will that mean? Will it ever be built? Um, I absolutely want it to be built uh, and I'm hopeful that, that it will. RD absolutely needs the bypass. Anybody who's stuck in traffic on a Friday mm. in RD and the residents of RD are constantly, and to me as they are to other local Oireachtas members, are all conscious of the issue. You sit in the Kells Road in RD mm. on a Friday trying to get onto the main street, you're in serious, serious mm. difficulty. And there are health and environmental considerations that everybody needs to be conscious of for the people of RD and for businesses and jobs and so on. We want this bypass built. Um, but there is an inevitability, and we, mm. we shouldn't put a tooth in and hide from this either. There are going to be delays. And this. this is a My clarification own. document uh, that you've brought in t- to us here this morning, uh, but is it open to interpretation? Uh, is it, for example, saying, uh, well, there's more of a chance that this will happen if you can overcome uh, the issue with the cul-de-sacs? Uh, if you can't overcome the issue with the cul-de-sacs, then you're into a really uh, grey area when it comes uh, to the environmental concerns. I, I don't think they, 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 they're hiding from this at all. Mm. I mean, it's very clear. I mean, people may have their own interpretation yep. of it, but mm. for me, it's very, very clear. There are statutory processes here that, you know, we can't wish away. Um, and we need to front up with people uh, and be very clear that nobody can wave a magic wand uh, and make sure the bypass is mm. built over the next year or two. My best assessment is it could be five to eight years. Mm. Um Providing, of course, that all of these different steps, the environmental impact assessment, the new business case mm. that will need to be made with the Department of Transport, the Department of Public so uh, Expenditure, how, how it will of, take a number of years How out of date will a planning application from 2005 be in 2025 or 2030? Well, that's a fair That's a fair point. Mm. And I think this particular document does cover that and points mm. up to that, re- points to that reality. I was anxious to get this document and to get it into the public domain to make sure that people are very, very clear on what the uh, current state of play is. I want to see this built. Uh, Loud County Council, I now want to expedite this as well. There are engineers who are working very hard, Loud County Mm -hmm. Council at the moment, with local councillors, with the Rockless members, to try to find a way Mm -hmm. to make this happen, to address everybody's concerns, and ultimately to make sure that the Department of Transport, TII, and the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform are satisfied that they can give the green light to this project mm. after, remember, after all of the statutory assessments are made. And mm. I can't stress that uh, enough. This is a statutory process that we can't wish away. So for people who are just fed up with RD being gridlocked, uh, forget about it for the time being? No, absolutely not. Um, we all have to work very hard to get this done and expedite it to make sure mm. that... You know, a lot of these processes, Michael, can run in parallel. Um, so we can't. Just oh, I, 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 I don't mean for policymakers and legislators. I mean for ordinary people going about their day-to-day business. They can forget about it for the next five years. I, or so I, I think it's, real, it's not going to be realised. Re, real, mm-hmm. Realistically, I don't think we will see shovels on the ground building mm-hmm. the RD bypass for the next. I'd, I'd say optimistically, three mm. to four years, mm. but maybe beyond that, mm. um, given what we now know yeah, from TII. Maybe ten years, yeah. and it's not because. People don't want it to be built. No. It's not because mm-hmm. the authorities don't want it to be built. There are legal processes that are in place that need to be met. These are the obstacles that need to be overcome. And I want to make sure that Loud County Council, TII, Department of Transport and everybody else who's an mm-hmm. interest in making this happen, that they're all on the same page and working 
um, hard working mm. might remain to get this done so there are no further delays Okay but there has to be a reason for it and if uh, you were to find blame uh, what is uh, the blame? Circumstances? Uh, the economic crash? Uh, that the funding wasn't available? I think there are a number of different mm. um, uh, issues here um, TI makes it very clear of course that you know when the crash came um, back in 2007 uh, all projects like this were essentially long fingered mm. um, so we've missed because of that crash a number of very significant opportunities mm. um, that I think primarily uh, is, is a problem but that that's we are where we are mm. uh, I mean that's a reality that everybody had to face over the last few years but we made sure actually in the review of the capital spending programme back in 2015 that the 2016 to 2019 programme when mm. we were in government included the RD bypass um, it re-emerged now issues obviously emerged understandably the area has developed significantly since mm. um, the mid noughties when got the original planning application so it would have to be reassessed anyway, regardless mm. of concerns that emerged around cul-de-sacs mm. and so be- on. Because of the timing. Be- be- yeah. Because of the timing. It's gone past. Essentially, the, the original planning application mm-hmm. is, 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 is null and void. Okay. Um, mm. So it would need to be have been reviewed anyway. So I think we just need to be straight with people, mm. need to front up with people, say don't expect this to happen over the next two to three years. The mm. statutory processes can happen, will be happening. That will all unfold mm. over the next short period of time, I hope. Mm. But I don't expect to see shovels on the ground uh, outside of the marking that's going on at the moment, um, I don't uh, see anything significant being done in terms of the building of the motorway mm-hmm. for, for quite some time. All right, the building okay. of the bypass, I should say. Uh, not great news, uh, but uh, we'll leave that's it there for the sense, moment. Michael, yeah. From yeah, 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 no, the no, document, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, very clear yeah, from yeah, TII, yeah. Uh, and we, I think we have to be straight mm-hmm. with people. Okay, we'll uh, leave it there. Thanks uh, for coming into us uh, this morning. As you say, you weren't well on Friday to go to that uh, meeting uh, with uh, the council, but uh, perhaps every cloud has a, a silver lining because uh, I see a text in from uh, Barry White Tribute Band who are looking to know if you're available on Saturday night. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out of many talents, but I don't think people need to hear me say. Thank you very much, Jed Nash. <laughs> Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael. Can you hear me there? You mm-hmm. can indeed. Paul from Dunnacarney, Michael was in touch. First thing this morning, listening into your interview at the top of the show with Declan Power in relation to Lisa Smith. And he says he is so annoyed at the prospect of huge amounts of money being spent to bring Lisa Smith home. He says she chose to go out there of her own accord. And why is this money being spent? Can she not just get a flight home like anybody else has to do? Uh, similar sentiments from another well, listener. Well, she's been detained in Turkey and uh, they're saying uh, they don't want to be a hotel for foreign terrorists uh, and I suppose it's up to the courts to decide whether she is or not but uh, as a, an ISIS bride she's been detained as being at least affiliated uh, with the ISIS group so uh, if uh, she is to come home it has to be under some security arrangement I'm sure. Well, Joe feels that she shouldn't be allowed to come home at all. She says that he feels that if she is brought back Mm -hmm. and flown back at the state's expense, is it not sending out the wrong message? Is it sending out the message that it's okay to do these things 
and then the state will look after you anyway. I don't know and I suppose uh, the answer to that will lie in how it's dealt with when she returns, if she returns uh, but what about the message uh, that might be sent out if uh, you don't repatriate uh, somebody like Lisa Smith uh, she's an Irish citizen and indeed her innocent daughter is an Irish citizen but if you don't repatriate Lisa Smith uh, does it mean that somebody else has to take responsibility for her or to oversee the threat that she may or may not pose or indeed to, to pay the cost of having to detain her. Anne was in touch and she's also shocked at the amount of money that's been spoken about to bring Lisa Smith home and says that she doesn't agree with the money being spent on this. She feels that there's so much that could be done in Ireland with this money, including helping the homeless. Mm. I think Turkey is a pretty poor country as well, isn't it? I suppose. Mm-hmm. She's talking from it from the Irish perspective. Oh, well, I know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that bothers Anne. Okay, well, that's the point I was making, I suppose. I mm-hmm. uh, Paddy and mm-hmm. Kells, uh, in relation to the Taoiseach's comments, uh, you know, surrounding the need for conversation on um, uh, migrants, mm. Paddy was saying that there seems to be a, no- a, lot, a lot of people in this country who are making money out of the migrant business. It's an industry here. And feels that is wants to point out that he's not racist, but feels that we should prioritise those who are fleeing war torn or persecution from a country and is not in favour of just letting people in for economic reasons because he says we cannot house the people that are already living in this country and that should be a priority first. Yeah, and I think the Taoiseach uh, is probably misgiven in uh, talking about a, a conversation on integrating people in this country, accepting them into this country and integrating them and how we go about that because that conversation should have started at least 25 years ago uh, as many of us said at the time. Instead, uh, we have... Uh, dealt with this in a a firefighting approach Uh, and now it's a question of uh, where there is available accommodation it seems rather than suitable accommodation hold that thought for a moment though because uh, we will bring it back home now and go back uh, to Halloween we were hearing about some of uh, the problems uh, the guards endured on Halloween night uh, but of course as always uh, there are other problems the Mayor of uh, Drogheda is here with us uh, this morning Paul Bell a very good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us Uh, you've come from what looks like landfill in Ballsgrove. Uh, this is uh, the green in uh, Ballsgrove. Yeah. Uh, how many uh, bags of rubbish were dumped? Well, on the overnight on the eve leading into uh, Halloween, uh, residents accounted for almost 300 bags of domestic refuse. Right. That's what it says in front of me. I asked yes. you the question yeah. rather than read it because I was wondering if it was a, a no. mistake, a, a typo or no, something. There's no, there's no typo. And on top of yeah. that then, mm. uh, there was the issue that in excess of 400 tyres uh, found their way onto the green uh, all of which were then uh, borned overnight. This is not in the town of Drada. This is on one green this in Ballsgrove. 400 tyres. This is on one green. Uh, the area, uh, for those who wish to view it now, mm. uh, is a, akin to what a landfill site would look like if it mm. wasn't managed. Uh, the c- council response in Angarashi Corner uh, has been inadequate. Mm. Uh, I know uh, some member, members of those organisations would like to hear the mayor, mayor saying that, but did, I am saying it. Did they know that there was a pile of tyres, let alone 400 tyres? We were talking about terrorism. To burn one tyre is environmental terrorism. Mm. Well, that, that's not a word I would be thinking about, but I will say this. Oh, no, it uh, is. When, I mean, the toxic fumes that well, come well, off... Oh, well, let's be clear about this. Yeah, We've yeah. had many conversations mm, in this mm. studio, Michael, yeah. about the, 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 the disposal of by incineration of waste. Yeah. And the first thing that comes up is, what's the environmental impact? Mm. 
but in relation to this activity mm. or bonfire activity that just seems to go out the window yeah. and it's not just Ballsgrove I, I view the uh, damage done to the Brookville Green yesterday yeah. and I also in Beechwood where there's been damage done to, to green space which has to be maintained by the local authority in relation to Brookville mm. by the way mm. unfortunately for those residents it's the residents association that have to actually pay for the clean up there Are there two sets of young people in this country or two mindsets for young people we're always told that young people are environmentally conscious mm. uh, they want to save the planet uh, they want to reduce mm. carbon emissions and mm. so on but anybody who burns a tyre is an environmental terrorist well, you see, this is another thing too that young people get, uh, I suppose, the rap for a lot of these things. But mm. for this activity to take place, somebody gave them the tires, I suppose. Uh, but yeah. for, first mm. of all, well, first mm. of all, let's go back to this. Yeah. If you're disposing of tires, when you change the tires in your local yep. dealer, yep. you're paying a levy for the safe disposal of that product. Mm. That's what you pay for. It's on the bill when you when you change the tires, and then you trust as a customer that that will be disposed of in an environmentally safe way. Uh, what's happening here is is that uh, somewhere along the line, some businesses in the area uh, of um, uh, in the area of Drogheda and operating in Drogheda mm. have actually let their local community down, mm. uh, and the local authority have identified those businesses quite clearly and have engaged with them over a period of time leading up to uh, mm. to the bonfire uh, night, which was Halloween, of course. Uh, and again, this has materialised where it basically the response of the local authority. Uh, the coordination between themselves and the Garda Corner has been inadequate. And I'm saying that, and I'll be raising it today at the Joint Policing mm. Committee in Drogheda, because uh, someone has to speak... 400 tyres? 400, uh, actually, in excess of 400 tyres. Where did they come from? Well, well, no one can say to me that they were collected the, uh, along the highways and byways of Drogheda. Yeah. Uh, it's very clear that either tyres are being supplied or there are business premises somewhere in the area where these products are not being guarded appropriately uh, because at the end of the day you cannot just generate that but there's also other areas where pallets are being taken from mm, mm. Uh, from business areas and uh, I viewed it myself on the north side of town where uh, you know uh, mm. along the upper mill area you can see young people uh, wheeling yeah. uh, pallets uh, along in trolleys yeah. on uh, on challenge everywhere where they've yeah. come from business premises yeah, yeah. and it's up to those business premises to ensure that those products Products again are locked up safely and are disposed of the way they should be disposed. Well, you'd of. imagine somebody's turning a blind eye because it's in front of your face. Well, isn't it? I, I believe it. A lot of blind eyes have been mm. closed here. I mean, over the last three years, uh, I've been engaging with businesses directly mm. myself, asking them for to do the, the civic duty mm. to support communities who are trying to stop all this yes. up mm. uh, carry on. I think you're here every year, actually. Absolutely, actually. and yeah. and this yeah. year, by the way, mm. Michael, I, I witnessed it with horror some of the activities leading up over a, a three-week period. There wasn't a night, for instance, in Ballsgrove mm. uh, uh, in over a three-week period that there wasn't fires being set and domestic refuse being born. Yeah. That is that is. And what did you say? Uh, 400, 300 bags of rubbish or yeah. whatever it was? Waste, uh, an awful yeah. lot. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah. if uh, you put a, a bag, a black bag of rubbish onto a fire, mm. some of it burns, but not all of it burns. What the, and what's left behind is very attractive to rats and mice. Well, the, the issue is it's not only attractive of the rats and mice the, the problem is that over the last number of days uh, remember Michael the heavy rain and actually the actions of mm. the fire service locally mm. which I have to commend uh, they set about ensuring that the fires could not be re- reset yeah, yeah. the problem is now these are becoming dumping sites uh, yeah, uh, people add to it they add to it mm. now unfortunately the, the local authority because of now how wet it is will find it difficult to get machinery into that green space 
to lift what remains of, of uh, uh, the debris, what remains of the bonfire, but they will have to do so. Mm. Uh, the clean-up, by the way, if I recall, in the last uh, last year was in excess in the, in the town of Drogheda of €20,000. That's €20,000 we could be doing something yeah. else with. Yeah. Uh, but again, what's disturbing about this is it's the idea where dumping is an illegal activity. Mm. Uh, the material's been dumped there don't burn properly, they have to be cleaned up, and it is damage in the local environment. But the, the other criticism, of course, is that the local authority know and have powers to deal with illegal dumping. You would have re- recalled that over the last four years, Michael, uh, people are living in you know rapid areas where mm. there were CCTV systems installed mm. have been promised year after year. One is that the CCTV systems will be brought back into operation, and secondly, that those systems will be connected to Angara Shiakana. That conversation has gone on for four years uh, at a huge cost because it hasn't happened. It'll be raised again today. Uh, and I feel that the I feel that I'm not very confident that the you know the desired answer will come back to us. The community has to be helped fight this type of activity. Remember mm. something: these are minorities of people who are involved in this type of activity. Yeah. But now, what's happening is but the authorities are turning a blind this, eye. It's a free for uh, all. And then the communities I are mean, being blamed. This issue yeah. here, but yeah. the, the the rubbish was reported to me. Uh, at something like um, 0800 hours on the 31st of October I passed an information mm, to council it's 8 o'clock in the morning, yeah. and mm, just mm, didn't, it just didn't mm. happen uh, I've also spoken to Angara Shea Corner um, they, they were somewhat frustrated about the coordination of the approach but I'm actually saying no you know, both agencies have to work together mm. to try and help communities who are trying to stop this I mean there are residents in Ballsgrove who are c- contacting me or contacting the local authorities saying okay. this activity is ongoing it mm. needs to be stopped it's shocking yeah, uh, it's true, ridiculous, yeah. uh, apart from shocking. Uh, yeah. Come back to us uh, when uh, the council responds to you, will you please? Yes, I will. Thank, Thank you very you much. Indeed. Uh, that's Labour Party councillor Paul Bell, who's uh, the mayor of uh, Drogheda. Let's uh, hear some more of uh, the comments that have been coming to us. What else have you got there, Marie? Ron, you phoned in, Michael, in relation to the attacks on Gardaí. And she had an interesting point, I felt. She says that when you witness or when you hear about a member of the force being attacked, it makes you even more vulnerable as a citizen, she feels. Yeah. Mm. Because you think as a member of the public, well, if these people are brazen enough to attack the Gardaí, well, what would they do to an ordinary person? Well, if they're not afraid to t- attack the guards, they're probably not afraid to attack you. Exactly. Well. That's the point, yeah. And, yeah. and she feels that uh, law and order in some way has broken down and that every effort should be made to... Uh, punish those severely who mm-hmm. behave in this manner because she does feel, as she says, that it makes everybody more vulnerable. Okay, very good. And then finally, if I just go to Mairead, or, or on the same topic, she feels that there should be harsher punishments for uh, people who attack emergency services, whether it's the Gardaí or the fire service. She feels it's just appalling because you never know when you might need these people. And if they're driven out of areas, as she says, you, ha- you see in parts of Dublin where they're afraid to go into an area, it's the people, again, that may need them that won't have them when, when they're required. So okay. that's the point she's making. All right, thanks uh, for making that point and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. Thanks for that matter. Marie, if you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you, Our Telephone number is 1850 715 958. Michael Michael Reed Reed on on LMFM. LMFM. 
letter to on Taoiseach uh, dated uh, to the first uh, dated uh, the first of November reads uh, Taoiseach we write to you as citizens to record our deep concerns about the negative repercussions which Brexit will have for our country for the Good Friday Agreement and for the peace process Brexit has changed everything the constitutional political social and economic status quo on the island of Ireland is now in flux discussion about the reunification of Ireland has moved centre stage many citizens are already involved in formal and informal discussions about this. We believe that a new conversation is now required about our shared future on the island of Ireland. The government needs to plan for this. A clear majority of people in Ireland, both in this state and in the north, want to remain in the European Union. The majority of citizens in the north voted to remain in the 2016 referendum. This includes many unionists. In recent years, a conversation about Ireland's future and the place of unionists in it is publicly taking place among unionists. This is a welcome development. Irish citizens should continue to enjoy the rights which accrue from membership of the European Union as well as the full protection of the European Court of Justice. It is the responsibility of the government to ensure that the democratic wishes and rights of Irish citizens are respected and protected regardless of where they live on the island. Let's have a discussion on how this can be achieved. We would urge you to start this process based on the vision of the democratic change set out in the Good Friday Agreement start planning now. We ask the government to establish a citizens' assembly reflecting the views of citizens north and south or a forum to discuss the future and achieve maximum consensus on a way forward. It's a a letter that is signed in all humbleness, but I I can't tell you by whom because uh, there's a thousand signatories to it and you can see each of the people who have put their name to this letter in the Irish Times which has uh, published uh, the letter along with the thousand names uh, and far too many of them to go through on the programme uh, this morning. But let's talk uh, about this with Senator Mark Daly, who's a, a Fianna Fáil senator and uh, the uh, person who compiled the f- first report by the Senate, Senate and Dáil Committee on Irish Unity. Uh, a very good morning to you, Mark Daly, once again, and thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, you didn't sign that letter, it has to be said yourself, because there are no elected political representatives uh, involved in in uh, this group, uh, but the future of Ireland, uh, I think, has spelt out your thoughts on this matter as you've been articulating them over some period of time. Yeah, I suppose since the Good Friday Agreement Implementation Committee published the report, which I compiled uh, along with its 17 recommendations over two years ago, the government have failed to put in place or make any uh, provisions for any of the 17 recommendations, which the all-party committee unanimously endorsed and recommended. And that is a, a serious policy neglect by the Irish government. We, we've heard the Taoiseach only last week talking about uh, the issue of United Ireland and that now was not the time to, to prepare for it. And that is clear policy neglect. It's, 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 and goes back to that, that quote by John Bradley, that policy neglect seldom goes unpunished. In fact, um, one of the reports that I, I brought out recently, I, I got an email from the Department of Foreign Affairs asking me would I send over copies of the research I had done because they don't have any research done. And this is the main aim of the state. So under Articles 2 and 3 of the Constitution, this is an obligation on the state to achieve this aim, not an aspiration to have it and simply let it rest on the shelf in Articles 2 and 3 and, uh, in the Constitution and do nothing about it. The state are obliged to do something. 
and that would include addressing unions' concerns. But the thousand people who who signed that letter, I believe about two-thirds of them are from the Republic mm. and a third are from the North or, or overseas, and it's everybody from, don't know, Cusack, the hurler from Cork, and Adrian Dunbar, the actor, and Christy Moore, and Mary and Francis Black, and James McLean, and, and many others. And these are citizens of the state, people we, we would, uh, many of them we would know and respect, uh, who have a concern that what the government are doing uh, in terms of policy neglect is a serious uh, issue for the country because if they do not prepare, do not engage with unions and the loyalist community, and then ultimately there will be consequences for that and the lack of preparation. In fact, the ESRI chief executive even spoke about the need for preparation on the United Ireland because mm. as the head of the Economic, Social and Research Institute, established over uh, 60 years ago next year by a loudman T.K. Whittaker, uh, they are very much engaged in the issue of forward planning, looking at the issues that are coming down the line and have advised the government uh, down through the decades on what they need to do to prepare for new economies, new industry uh, and challenges ahead. And they have said that the preparation needs to be done from an economic point of view. Because it goes back to this simple question when I ask uh, my colleagues in the Dáil when we discuss this issue and they, they, some of them uh, would be and in Fine Gael would be of the view that uh, it should be uh, left on the mm. shelf for another while. Um, that I asked them the question, well, do you think there'll never be a referendum on the United Ireland? And the Fine Gael response is, well, I suppose there probably will be at some stage. And I said, and should we no, not be preparing now? Okay, and, the and, and they that... tend to agree, but then we see an action by the government. And that's why this letter is very important, mm. because it is not led by a political party. I was at the event in the, the waterfront in Belfast, which was organised by the same group who organised this letter. There was over 2,000 people at it. Mm. Um, and we had Joe McHugh was there, Derek Kaleary from Fianna Fáil was there, the deputy leader of Fianna Fáil, and people from across the politi- political spectrum. And what was coming from the audience was basically that, you know, there needs to be preparation. No one is saying that there should be a referendum tomorrow, because obviously the lesson of Brexit is that causes chaos. Uh, this is a long-term issue, so we do need to address it, but we need to start now. Mm. And this letter that I read out a, a moment ago has uh, the support of over a, a thousand people from uh, across every sector of Irish society, business people, people from the trade union movement, from the arts, as you mentioned, academics, community education, uh, the media, sports, uh, indeed uh, people uh, living abroad in the United States, Canada and Australia. A thousand and eighty-eight people in fact who have put their name to this letter which I gather was uh, penned by Niall Murphy who's a solicitor in Belfast uh, and has been making this argument for some time and whilst it is non-political is it partisan is it uh, trying to find uh, the means uh, to get to the end well I suppose you know it goes back to the 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 issue of Articles 2 and 3 of the Constitution which are still part of the Constitution was amended by the Good Friday Agreement uh, and states quite clearly that uh, the achievement of unity on this island can only be done by the will of the people both north and south in a referendum as provided for, as the letter says, in the Good Friday Agreement. And what that group are trying to encourage the government to do is to have the conversation and to organise those citizens' assemblies. Uh, and others are doing this. Academics are doing it. Trinity College are involved in, uh, in this area. So are University College Dublin. Are our Queen's Liverpool University College uh, London is organising uh, a conference 
in relation to how the referendum uh, should be organised and what should be done in advance. Of course, one of those elements would be a citizens' assembly, as we've seen in other referendums. Mm. But, you know, the civil society is moving on way ahead of the government, and the government are, are doing nothing to be honest with you, um, and are failing to address the concerns uh, and and knowing the concerns of the unionist community, knowing what the ESRI have said about needing to prepare for uh, the economic future for the whole island, the government continue to do nothing and ignore the problem. Uh, and it, it is a problem because the fact that the unionist community are discussing it, and as we've discussed in this uh, mm-hmm. show before, 60% of the unionist community, when asked in a Lord Ashcroft poll, did they believe that Northern Ireland would be part of the United Kingdom in 10 years' time? 60% of them said it would not be. It would be in a united Ireland. No. So if the unionist community believe that is going to be the future for this island, then the government needs to act upon that and needs to take those steps necessary to make that future that we all want to see, a future that is inclusive, but everybody wants to know what that future is going to be like, and it can't be a future decided by sloganeering on the side mm. of a bus and people telling falsehoods. They need the facts, and as I said... Well, at the start, s- when- speaking of which, do you believe Boris Johnson could be instrumental in bringing a, about a, a united Ireland by leaving unionists feeling betrayed by him and his government? I, I suppose I, I was having this discussion with a senior uh, Protestant church leader only last week, um, and we were discussing that issue. And one of the scenarios, which is quite quite possible, and, and we all know about the Scottish National Party, um, look desire for another referendum on Scottish independence in 2020. So if that referendum comes to pass and Scotland ends up independent and remains in the European Union, as has been stated by the European Union, said that if Scotland went independent, it would actually be allowed to remain in the European Union. Um, you would see a, a mood change in Northern Ireland because many of the union's communities' connection to the United Kingdom is actually to Scotland because that's where their families and their connection is. And seeing Scotland going independent is the breakup of the United Kingdom. And that would accelerate the debate even further than it is already on the issue of a united Ireland, because there is no longer technically then a united kingdom. There's only Wales and, and, and England, and there's no more, there isn't a Britain. Um, so you could see the situation of Scottish independence accelerating the issue. But what we can't afford to have is a premature referendum without the, the necessary and long-term planning that is required. Now, how long-term that is, I'm not the expert mm. on the economic planning that would be required, but the ESRI are. And they believe that the, that should start now. Mm. And I think, you know, it's, if you see Scottish independence happening and you you hear what the unionist community are saying in Lord Ashcroft polls and other polls about there being a united Ireland in 10 years, if you sat down with all the politicians in Leinster House and said, how long would it, would it take us to achieve the peaceful unification of Ireland? 10 years would be about the size of it, but it could happen sooner than that. We've got to be prepared for, for anything because, mm. as and you had me on your show recently, mm-hmm. about the fact that at this stage, we don't even know who's allowed to vote. Yeah, but which way will they vote and how much of a, a factor will a sense of betrayal play into it? If people feel betrayed by Boris Johnson, do you think that that uh, would bring about a United Ireland? Uh, going back to that question, could he be instrumental in making it happen? I, I, well, I, I suppose Brexit has been instrumental in making it happen, and a lot of the elements in, in Brexit, including the deal that Boris Johnson negotiated and where he did a U-turn uh, on what he promised the DUP, is part of that. But it still goes back to an identity issue and where 
people in Northern Ireland in the unionist community feel British and then we have to look at how do we accommodate that identity in the United Ireland. So that is a long-term issue okay. and you know we do need to articulate that point of view over and over again. We have to give the assurances but we also have to put in place the legislative footing that would underpin that and, and show that we are genuine about that because as we've seen from Boris Johnson, promising something uh, in news conferences and uh, at podiums is of very little use. You need to have concrete steps to ensure that the future that we all want to see is put in place legally so that people's rights are protected and their concerns are addressed. And at this moment in time, the Irish government have said quite clearly they're not going to prepare for United Ireland. And that actually is a breach of their constitutional obligation. And that's not me saying that. That's two attorney generals have said that the achievement of United Ireland, one of whom of those attorney generals ended up in the Supreme Court as a judge, um, said that the achievement of the United Ireland is a constitutional imperative, which means it's an obligation on the state to achieve. And they are stating quite clearly that they are going to breach their constitutional obligation and not do any preparation whatsoever. Okay, we'll leave it there. We'll leave people to read uh, the names of uh, the secretaries uh, to that letter on page uh, three of uh, the Irish Times today. But thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Fianna Fáil Senator Mark Daly. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Let's uh, return uh, to what is uh, the inconvenience of a boil water notice uh, for people on uh, the Talonstown uh, supply. Some 200 to 300 people are still on a boil water notice. Uh, We're joined once again uh, by uh, Fianna Fáil TD for the area, Declan Brannock. Uh, Very good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, It's not just the inconvenience uh, that you're concerned uh, about this boil water notice. Uh, you're concerned that people were left at risk without reason. Absolutely, Michael. Good morning to you and your listeners. Um, uh, your introduction uh, really has summed it up in that um, this saga, which has been going on from middle of July, almost 105 days at this stage, um, that not alone were the public not kept informed, but indeed the public representatives, and that includes myself and Councillor John Sheridan, have been very active on this particular issue. Indeed, um, I was going back over my emails last night and sent seven emails uh, of various uh, requests and, and, and concerns to Irish mm-hmm. Water, and n- not on one occasion in any of my dealings or Councillor John Sheridan's dealings with them did they mention uh, the fact that it was 12 days uh, that this there was a need for a notice to issue to boil water uh, back in July and uh, they failed to do so. And this has only come to public representatives' attention uh, as a result of a report last Friday in the Irish Times uh, by reporter Sean McCarthy uh, where he highlighted two EPA reports, that's the Environmental Protection Agency report, one that was done back last, uh, on the 20th of the 12th, 2018, uh, which queried and questioned uh, that the water was suspect at that time, but indeed a a report done on the 16th of August this year where it was highlighted uh, the fact that they didn't even take the bother to not alone inform uh, the public, but the public representatives who have been active on this case. There never has been a mention of those two reports, and they they make absolute shocking reading for anybody who takes the time to read them. I have done so. And uh, the first report clearly speaks about a concern in relation to uh, an over uh, level of um, aluminium in the water. Uh, 
uh, as, as a result of uh, the, uh, the Govnet mine in Maraclun that collapsed uh, and where there was real concern that the level of aluminium in the water uh, needed to be addressed. It, it saw, the EPA sought a report from Irish Water, an immediate report of the, of, from their findings and uh, what they were going to do to address it. Not one mention was made to me or any other public representative in relation to that initial report. And the, the second report that on the 16th of August, we weren't even told about it. And that is absolutely unacceptable. I have been flagging this issue for quite a time. It's not just the issue of aluminium in the water. Uh, there was serious concern in relation to uh, pesticides as a result of runoff uh, from, uh, obviously, from agriculture. And indeed, the, the source itself uh, of extraction on the River Glade, uh, what really caused the problem back in July was a huge flooding issue where the water got exceptionally dirty and uh, various pumps and, 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 and other items failed. But, Michael, this has gone on, as I've said, 105 days. We still have uh, up on 300 people affected. Uh, originally, it was over 2,000 people. Uh, people have said to me, and rightly so, mm. that when, when the problem in Dublin uh, when it was six hundred thousand, you could get you could get action, but you couldn't get action for six hundred homes here in Louth, who have been absolutely hoodwinked by Irish Water uh, and indeed by the local authority mm. in relation to lack of information, and the fact that it took twelve days longer to notify the boil water. We all know and have heard instances of people have been sick. What uh, happened in that 12-day period? Uh, you heard, as you say, from some people, the first of which was a priest. Well, uh, can, I, can I say, very early in July, mm. uh, there was flushing or, or cleaning of the lanes, and a lot of people uh, were making calls in relation to the quality of the water at that time. Uh, but it was around uh, the, na- the, na- the 19th or 20th that people began to become very, very concerned and, uh, it, you know, that the quality of the water was not what it, it, it should be. In fact, um, it's clear uh, in the report that the staff reported that the raw water quality had deteriorated on the 19th of July due to a flood event. Uh, there was no alarm at the time to warn the plant operator of high raw water turbidity levels. So there was all sorts of failures in relation to the, uh, you know, the whole issue of maintenance of this plant. As I said, it had been flagged back in, in, in last December and reflagged again. Obviously, steps have been taken to, to improve the plant's operation and mm. the boil water was, has been removed, as you said, from, from a large portion of the scheme. But that still leaves others very discommoded. But the key issue here, Michael, as far as I'm concerned, is you have a, what I would call a not-fit-for-purpose plant a, that they have tried to mend. But the core issue here is that the abstraction point is no longer suitable or fit for purpose. And Irish Water, through the EPA, have been asked to put forward a plan to solve this problem. And I'm reliably informed that the real solution to this problem is to connect into the Cavan Hill water supply uh, and the RD water supply and to feed the reservoir which supplies the higher ground in Talonstone, and that reservoir for people who are your listeners mm-hmm. is at Muller Crew that a, two, a booster pump or two booster pumps need to be put on the, on, on the supply to feed that hay ground at Talonstown into the reservoir at Mullacrew and would solve the issue in that you would have a modern drinking 
water system coming from uh, a highly monitored plant and Irish water have failed to inform myself or John Sheridan in relation to any of this and there were numerous as in emails indeed Irish water had meetings with the local councillors not one mention of these reports absolutely unacceptable could I go further and say yeah. uh, Michael that you know the, I can understand and, and somebody who has been has considerable experience and in, in been the secretary of group water scheme for over 25 years problems do arise with water quality and they need to be tackled but there is no excuse at this stage that a letter should mm. or, or some form of communication should be made you know within a fortnight they know who has the water connections the, the same as when the esb are cutting you off i know you can't do the mm. same system but the, certainly i understand that in, in, Do- in the dublin region they sent texts out to people when there was a problem with the water. I have people coming to me weeks and weeks after this event who don't buy a local newspaper or maybe don't listen to your radio show, but the reality is that they only heard it uh, by speaking to somebody at a much later stage. Yeah, and we did put that to Irish Water uh, uh, when they did speak to us about us and they said they would try to improve on it. We did put it to them that uh, the water had obviously been contaminated for some time before they issued the boil water notice uh, and uh, they said that people should seek advice from medical experts if they had felt unwell, that really it had nothing to do with them, that that wasn't their area of expertise. Uh, But it, it seems as though it was... Uh, something that was waiting to happen. Uh, the EPA, as you say, says the sampling point is unrepresentative uh, and uh, that it should be done in RD, according to the uh, EPA, I think, at uh, the water treatment plant there, and uh, that it should be done through jar testing rather than uh, the system that they're using at the moment, uh, which seems to be from the look of the water, is it? Yeah, I mean, again, I'm not uh, au fait on modern systems, mm. but certainly this is certainly not a modern system and is outdated. Uh, just for for the people who are still discommoded, an email as of last Friday uh, to Sean McCarthy uh, mm. said that they're still having difficulties in cleaning and getting the, the pipe network right for the, mm. the, the people who are currently still discommoded. And sick. And and we put many of uh, those points, as I say, to Irish Water, uh, including the fact uh, how John Sheridan had been outlining that one child had been hospitalised and the suspicion was that it was as a a result of drinking the water before the notice had been issued. Uh, And uh, again, there seemed to be a, well, you know, we're the water experts, we're not the health experts uh, response to that particular incident. But this can be very serious. Uh, It can result in diarrhoea, it can result in vomiting, it can result in cramps in the abdomen, and uh, in worst case scenario, uh, it can result in kidney failure, I think. Uh, absolutely, uh, Michael. It's not. It, well, it certainly is a health issue. Uh, the impact of this on both homes and indeed businesses uh, over this period, unnecessary in my view, lengthy period of time. Uh, the questions need to be answered, and I will be asking tomorrow uh, at a, a Rockless committee, uh, where the focus will obviously be on uh, the fallout in relation to what happened in Dublin. But I would like to say and believe that as I said at the outset of this thing, that 600 houses affected are as important as the 600,000 people. Uh, it doesn't matter where this incident happened, and we need to have the full information. And certainly Irish Water and local authorities have, have fallen short, uh, and the impact and inconvenience that has been placed on families is absolutely unacceptable. But what is equally uh, disgusting, in my view, is that uh, they, they, they will turn 
and say to us, we could read these reports on the EPA website. Not one mention was ever made by any official, either in local authority that I spoke to or indeed in Irish water, that uh, these reports were absolutely damning going back as far as last Christmas. And I want to know what Irish water are going to do to solve this and make it a long-term solution to ensure that the people in this mainly rural area of Midlouth uh, are not discommoded the way they have been. Okay, well, we'll uh, be interested. I'm sure many people will be interested uh, in hearing uh, their response in committee tomorrow. We'll leave there for the moment uh, and come back after uh, Irish Water responds to you. But uh, thanks for joining us this morning on uh, the programme. That's Fianna Fáil TD in Louth, Declan Brannock. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, it was cause for a lot of fuss last week. Indeed, there was a lot of fuss as the Taoiseach and about five government ministers announced that 85% or one of 149 of the climate-related actions due for delivery by the government in the past six months have been met. Or have they? Uh, You'd have to question that uh, reading uh, an internal audit from uh, the Department of Communications and Climate Action, or at least a report on it in uh, the Irish Times, uh, which received a copy of uh, this audit under the Freedom of Information Act. And it says uh, the arrangements in place in relation to the monitoring and oversight of the climate change targets within the department are unsatisfactory and that there are a number of failings on how progress on climate targets are recorded and reported. As a result of this, the Minister, Richard Bruton, is not informed on a systematic basis of performance gaps. There is no procedural arrangement for reporting progress on emission targets. Uh, Pretty damning stuff, uh, it would seem, uh, and uh, certainly at odds uh, with uh, the announcements made by government last week. Uh, Let's hear from Eamon Ryan, who's uh, the Green Party leader and on the line, and uh, a very good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme. Uh, You said uh, that there's a a lot of talk uh, and little action. What do you make of uh, this internal audit? Well, I think it it reveals the truth that actually we're failing to address climate change in this country. Our emissions are continuing to rise across pretty much every sector. And while the government will come out with this kind of backslapping exercise, aren't we great? We we achieved 85% of the actions we set ourselves uh, six months previously. The truth is we're not making the fundamental changes. And maybe if I just give you a couple of examples, Mike, mm. you know, kind of examples of what, well, what you mean in reality, like turn that into everyday. Give you two examples in the transport sector because it's probably the most egregious. The previous week to the government saying, oh, aren't we great on climate? Michael Ring had come out and said, look at me, I've got a quarter of a billion to widen the road from Castlebar to Westport. And at the same time, the passengers on the Westport trains this summer were standing pretty much all the way from Westport to Dublin. People mm. can imagine yep. that journey. Oh, that's incredible. And, yeah. and that's the reality, like a quarter of a billion. For a quarter of a billion to upgrade a road between two towns, we could have actually provided a decent public transport project uh, system for the whole county of Mayo. Mm. Give you an excellent example. Again, the government was out last week saying, oh, look, Minister of Transport, Shane Ross, saying, am I great? I've just ordered 41 new carriages for the rail railway lines and for anyone who's on the commuter services particularly from the northeast into mm. Dublin every day be it from Drogheda Dundalk or, or, or any point along the line they'd be saying oh god that's great news 
But the truth behind it is, firstly, those carriages won't be delivered for another two years. Mm. And secondly, it would, the decision to buy them was delayed for three years. It was back in early 2016 that the National Transport Authority and Irish Rail said, we need these additional carriages. If we don't deliver them quickly, we will have people standing on the commuter rail services into Dublin and elsewhere. And it took three years for the government to make a decision. The only reason I think they made a decision last week was because they were in risk of being uh, being bumped uh, behind the order book because the Japanese government had put in a massive order for trains to replace the ones that had been flooded in that recent typhoon in Japan. Now, in Japan, the government Mm. was able to make a decision within three weeks that they needed to order new carriages. In Ireland, we had a government which was sitting on their hands for three years despite Mm. having all the evidence that we needed these carriages, that our our commuter rail services are jam-packed and it's not working. And that's an example of, I suppose, turning it into real life. You know, the people standing on commuter rail services in and out of the capital every day are the living embodiment, in my mind, of this kind of, of the reality of how governments see climate. And all of those cars on the road that are necessarily on the road increase our emissions and we're going to miss the target set for us for next year and a decade after that. As a result, we may incur massive fines. But it's not all bad, is it? Uh, let me give you two examples, or, or two examples that the Taoiseach uh, gave uh, to the amazement, uh, I think, of some people last week because as uh, we continue to uh, to go ahead with these uh, emissions through the roof, uh, the world is warmer, which means we pay less for heating. He said there'll be lower heating bills. Uh, and because uh, the place is warmer, there'll be fewer cold weather related deaths. That was the weird thing. Yes, the climate, the Taoiseach saying climate was a good news story. Um, Came straight out of Donald Trump's handbook, did it not? It did, and, and I suppose it came, it's interesting, it came out the same day, yeah, today you see it in the papers, that actually Dublin is at risk from storm force surge. And what good is it be if it's, oh, it's a lovely warm day, but you're up to your knees in flood water. Mm, and people are being hospitalised, it would seem, and as also, well. And also the wider, you know, this is not just, a, this is a global issue, and there are hundreds of millions of people whose lives are threatened, even if we have a slightly warmer winter, even if it's flooding, but that's not the way to think of this. You have to think big and think of the big picture and then you have to act locally. And I think actually over the weekend, I don't know if you saw it, but the late, late last night, a blind boy um, from Limerick was on from the rubber bandits. And he would put it really simply, he said, Ireland is small, so why should we bother about this? He says, Ireland is small maybe in terms of our missions and our, you know, what we do, mm. but actually culturally we're big. And actually, if we went and did this and showed leadership and played our part and were part of the turning it around this big challenge, it would be hugely significant. And our country, even though a small country, would be very significant, as you say, to counter that Trump narrative, to counter that, mm. oh, sure, maybe this is a good news story, climate. And I think the Taoiseach let his guard badly down yesterday. I think he should... Uh, withdraw those sort of comments and I think you should start focusing on making the actual transition and it's not as if the transition is going to be a bad thing Mm. like you know providing those rail carriages on time would not have been a bad thing it would have actually saved us money it would actually give people a better quality of day-to-day life Mm. and so so whatever the hap- climate happens in the climate, we have the opportunity to play our part in a global shift in, in sa- saving lives right across the world as well as here and that should be our focus, not patting ourselves on the back, mm. not saying it's not a problem, maybe climate will be a yeah. good thing, we'll have warmer winters. 
that's not the way to view this issue. Oh, well, I don't know if the Taoiseach has been shoe shopping, but he certainly put his big foot in it when it came uh, to immigration and his uh, comments about uh, Albanians and people from Georgia and then this nonsense uh, about lower heating bills and people uh, dying uh, less as a, a result of warmer housing and all of that. Uh, but, uh, I mean, the Taoiseach knows better than anybody. Uh, when that happens, you have the type of floods uh, that uh, causes such havoc in Japan. Japan. Yeah, and and as I said, the problem here is no, no one's exactly certain with climate change as to how you know the the science is is very clear. Climate change is real. When we will cross over certain tipping points is not as clear, you know. And the tipping points would be we lose the Amazon rainforest, or the Arctic ice sheet melts beyond the point where you can stop it melting, and and that then leads to down the line. You know, even if the Greenland ice sheet melted, we could see a six metre rise in sea level. And that would, like most of the towns in the east coast of Ireland, would be gone then. You know, you'd be mm. losing Drogheda, Dundalk, Dublin, Wicklow. Most of the kind of the historic port cities and towns which were which were placed at a kind of at a, an easy, affordable point on rivers along the coast. You know, how do you put a price on that? Now, it's impossible to know what year exactly that would happen but and it may not be for a long time but even if you know that science is fairly clear now that Mm. that's a risk that's a tipping point risk that's what you're deciding and saying in the meantime oh well you know what it won't be so bad it'll be slightly Mm. warmer yeah it'll be slightly warmer but Dundalk will be underwater or Drahad will be underwater in maybe our children or our grandchildren's time it doesn't really matter the timeline and you can't be certain about that but that's what the best science tells us so what you don't do is say, oh, well, we'll enjoy the warm days in the meantime. You knuckle down and start doing what we have to do to avoid to play our part globally in that sort of process. OK, I've run out of time, but thank you for your time and for joining us. Eamon Ryan, the leader of the Green Party, brings our programme to its conclusion. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.